All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hi, this is Nick Freitas and welcome to Making the Argument. Today, we're going to be discussing the colonial pipeline crisis and what this has meant, how people have reacted to it, what's the government reaction been, you know, price gouging policy. We're going to cover all of that and we're going to we're going to do this in a way that I think is uh been largely lacking from a lot of the discussion on this issue. We're just going to have a a calm, reasonable conversation on on what happened the response, and what can we do better going forward, all right? But before we get into that, I'm just going to ask you real quick, make sure that wherever you're listening to this, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, watch it on YouTube, give us a like and subscribe. It helps us put more information out there in the future. It lets us get this information out to a wider audience. All right, so the Colonial Pipeline, what exactly is it? So it's about a 5,500-mile pipeline that goes from um, the Gulf Coast all the way to New York. And it, it's pretty vital. It covers almost half, about 45% of the fuel consumption on the East Coast. So this is a, a vital artery with respect to getting gas to the gas station so we can all fill up our cars, trucks, et cetera, right? That's, that's what it is. So what exactly happened? Well, by now you've all heard that it was hacked. So obviously a lot of these systems are heavily dependent on uh, computer programs which run it and make sure it, it's all managed efficiently. So the, the element that hacked it has been traced back to an Eastern European hacking group called DarkSide. And what's interesting is DarkSide put out, after all this was going and it caused all this problems for people, DarkSide said that, hey, look, we're not, uh, we're not affiliated with any government, that they were just doing this to make money. And they, and, and they even went so far as to say they weren't doing it to, make to uh, cause problems for society. They were just doing it to make money. So right off the bat, right, if you're looking for an argument on that one, it's pretty obvious. If the way that you're making money is by stealing things or shutting something down and then holding it ransom, that causes problems for society, all right? So it, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, it's an either-or proposition. If the way you're going to make money is by stealing, then you're going to cause problems for society, all right? Obviously, this caused a lot of problems because fuel is so uh, integral to the way that we actually conduct business and run our economy. Um, now, so that's what happened. It was hacked with ransomware, which means that they had to go through this process of restarting their systems. There was essentially a $5 million ransom that DarkSide uh, through at the company in, in exchange for them allowing their, their uh, systems to go back online. Now, obviously, from a government perspective, we have a, a long-term policy with the U.S. government that we don't negotiate with terrorists. We don't negotiate with you know, criminal entities because, obviously, this encourages more of the same behavior if they get what they want. Now, the report coming out now is that the company did pay the $5 million ransom 
Um, there's speculation they use cryptocurrency in order to do it, in order to just get everything back online. Now, uh, again, we, we can make the moral argument all day long. I think this is bad policy because obviously, again, it, it incentivizes this sort of illegal behavior and incentivizes more people to get in the game if they actually see a payout. We actually saw something similar with respect to a lot of the oil tankers that were being uh, hijacked by pirates, usually right around the Horn of Africa as well as some other locations. And from the company perspective, they looked at it as a cost-benefit analysis. Is it costing us more to not be able to get our product to market than it would be to actually pay the ransom? And so in many cases, they actually paid the ransom or their insurance paid the ransom, right? But you know, and again, there, there's a there's both a moral component to this and there's an economic component to this. The moral component is you shouldn't reward bad behavior. The economic component has to do with supply and demand and the cost benefit analysis. Um, but that's essentially the, the current state of where we're at right now is that the pipeline is back up and it's running again. Um, but obviously there, there's still going to be some delays with respect to getting gas to where it needs to be. All right, so what was, the, what was the response to this? Well, obviously when you have a vital pipeline that's supplying you know, 45% of the fuel consumption needs for the entire East Coast, this is gonna create something of a crisis. And there was, you had the reactions by um, the government, you had reactions by individuals, and you had reactions by the people that actually own the individual gas stations and things like that. And <clears throat> so let's look a little bit at the response. The government response um, included a couple of things. Um, a lot of states declared a state of emergency. And whenever they declare a state of emergency, essentially certain policies go into effect. Some of those policies were potentially beneficial, some of them were harmful. All right, some of the beneficial policies that went into place, like in, in Georgia, they actually suspended the gas tax. Um, most people are not aware that a significant portion of the price you pay at the pump is actually a result of taxes. In fact, the, the profit, um, on a, on a dollar of gasoline sold at the pump is actually less than what the overall taxes that are paid at the pump. And most states, uh, and to some degree the, the federal government, have taxes on gas and, and ostensibly they're supposed to go to transportation projects or maintaining the roads or et cetera. And they've determined that to be a more efficient way to raise taxes. But um, there, again, in, in most cases, there are more taxes collected at the pump than there is actual profit gained from the people selling you the gasoline. So that's important to understand. So suspending those gas taxes uh, temporarily can cause, it, it, can, it can make it easier for people to be able to get gas to the people that need it, all right? So that's one potentially beneficial. At the federal level, uh, Joe Biden actually suspended some of the environmental laws that went into getting gas to the, to the pumps, getting gas to the gas stations. And again, removing regulatory barriers can also be beneficial on, on streamlining the supply process in order to make sure more of it, it gets to where it needs to be. Some of the other policies that went into place had to do with price gouging policy. And this is something I want to talk about because I, I, think, there's, I think there's some confusion over this. And, and I think there's a lot of bad economic policy with, you know, you, you could argue positive moral intentions but there always ends up being negative consequences that, that politicians don't want to talk about. So for instance, in North Carolina, um, not only did the governor put in a state of emergency, but they also had a website where you could go where you could actually rat out gas stations that you thought were engaging in price gouging. So what is price gouging? Well, price gouging, you know, in, in a colloquial sense, is the idea that you have some sort of crisis and uh, what they're essentially saying is that businesses are 
getting exorbitant profits out of a result of a, a crisis, be it you know temporary or whatnot, that artificially restricts supply or puts the, the person who owns the, the commodity that's needed in a position where they can charge rates that they normally wouldn't charge if we weren't involved in a crisis. So you, you saw this with the floods down in New Orleans. Um, you, you've seen this with respect to things um, with COVID. And now you saw it with respect to gas prices. So here's something I want to go over that I think is really important for everyone to understand. And I, I want you to, I want you to understand what I'm the argument that I'm making here. I'm not making a moral argument necessarily with respect to what people consider to be price gouging. I'm simply talking about reality. Right? So here's reality. All of us saw pictures on Twitter, on Facebook, on the news of people pulling into gas stations, filling up their cars, filling up all of the oil cans that they had. Some people were even filling up like plastic bags with gasoline in anticipation of a long-term shortage. Now, again, based off of what was going on, was, was that a reasonable response? No, I, I don't think it was because this, this was not something that I thought was gonna be a long-term crisis that couldn't be overcome. But by the same token, people are reacting based off of what their individual needs are or what they anticipate is going to be um, perhaps a, a long-term problem that they're going to have to negotiate. And so they want to be able to get to work. They want to be able to fuel their farm equipment, you know, whatever it is. If you keep the price, you know, by law, right, which is what price gouging laws are intended to do. If you keep the price artificially low, you actually enable people to hoard more, right? So if, if the supply associated with gasoline means that the price of gas should go up significantly, but then politicians come in and say, no, 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 you're only allowed to charge this price or you're not allowed to charge more based off of the, the supply and demand uh, ratios, then you're, you're actually going to encourage people to go and consume more or get more gas than they actually need based off of artificially low prices. And what does that end up doing? Well, it ends up creating shortages, right? It ends up creating shortages. And it does that for a couple of reasons. One, people are obviously now getting a, a bunch of gas at an artificially low rate, which means that the gas is gonna run out quicker. And the gas runs out quicker for two reasons. One is just you know, basic supply consideration. It takes time for gas to go from the pipeline to the gas station, especially when you have a pipeline that's shut down. But the other problem that you're potentially creating here, and this is you know, something of, th this is a, a part that entrepreneurs play with in the marketplace that they're not really given credit for. They have to anticipate what the price for gas is, not only now, not just for what they bought it at in order to get it to the gas station when you pull up to the pump. They have to anticipate what the future price of gasoline is going to be. So the price that they're charging you for gasoline is not just based off of what they paid for their current supply. It's based off of what they anticipate they're gonna need for future supply. So obviously, if you have 45% of the oil coming to the East Coast cut for, for a certain period of time, the price of gas is going to necessarily increase based off of just supply and demand requirements. And so if they're not charging a price now that empowers them to be able to, be able to buy gas in the future, then you're gonna have shortages. So, a lot of times what, what an individual consumer will see when all of a sudden the price for gas went from you know, $2.70 a gallon to maybe $5 a gallon is, oh, you're taking advantage of a bad situation. Okay, maybe they are. But a far more likely reason for them to do that is because they have to anticipate what the future gas 
price of gas is going to be if they want to have it available at their gas station. And so they have to increase the cost in order to account for that. Otherwise, you're going to show up and, and you have to ask yourself as a, as a consumer, would you be more mad to have gas at $5 a gallon during a crisis point? Or would you be more mad if there was no gas at all? Because that's essentially what happens when the government artificially um, sets the price of gasoline at, at a price that the market will not bear. Okay, the, the other reason why increasing the price can actually have, a, actually have a benefit in a crisis is it sends signals to the marketplace that, hey, gas is really valuable right now. And so if you're in the process, of, if you're producing gasoline, then you can get a, a higher price for your product. And so it encourages people to sell gas to the stations that are, that are paying more for it. And that actually helps you avert the crisis. Now, again, you might be really mad that you're having to pay more for gas than you normally would have to. But the question is not whether or not you're going to have to pay more for gas. The question is whether or not would you rather pay more for gas or would you rather not have gas at all? That, that ends up being the very real factor that you have to take into account. So, so regardless of the frustration, and look, we all have a right to be mad, the fact that you know, hackers came in and shut down a really important pipeline, and now it's causing all of us misery as a result. All right, but to turn right around and say, okay, but to all the people that are currently supplying gas, because they're not the one, they're not at fault for this, right? The, the mom and pop shop that owns the you know, gas station, they're not the ones that created this crisis. They are responding to it in such a way in order to anticipate current need and future need, future demand, based off of the prices that they're going to have to, they're going to, have to purchase the gas at in order to sell it to you in the first place. All right, so it, it's, it's really important to look at this comprehensively. Um, again, I'm not telling you not to be frustrated by the increased prices, but I am telling you that when politicians say we're helping you by you know, legally preventing a gas station from elevating their prices in order to meet the market demand, those politicians are not helping you. And, and honestly, they're not really the ones paying a price for this, right? It's the individual, it's the individual gas stations that have to be able to predict future demand and future costs associated with meeting that demand. Okay, so that, that's really important to understand. A lot of this price gouging legislation sounds good. Politicians make a lot of hay out of it, but it doesn't take into account the reality of supply and demand issues. And, and ultimately, we as consumers are the ones that, that should be able to decide for ourselves what are we willing to pay for a particular commodity or service. And when the government comes in as a third party and says, oh, hey, we're here to help, we're gonna, we're gonna cause it to go artificially low, that creates shortages, right? That, that's just reality, right? Not even talking about the moral component of this, that's just reality, is that essentially they're taking the decision-making process away from us as consumers. Because it's not as if a gas station could just raise the prices to whatever they want. If they could do that, they would do it all the time. They have to do it within a competitive marketplace based off of the idea of the scarcity of resource, right, along with the demand for that resource. That's what ultimately ends up setting prices and, and value for a particular commodity or service. Okay, so that's why you're seeing it. And, and as much as it might be painful at times or frustrating at times, what history shows us is that when we, allow, when we allow the price to fluctuate based off of those supply and demand criteria, you're actually able to get through the crisis a lot faster. 
And we, we actually saw this in the 70s. In the 70s, Richard Nixon and um, you know, Jimmy Carter and others, their, their response to OPEC um, cutting off supply was to artificially set lower prices. And what you ended up with was shortages, right? You could only go to the gas station if you had an even numbered license plate on certain days and an odd numbered license plate on other days. So instead of allowing the market to, to fluctuate and adapt, to the circumstances, we created a situation where the government was now deciding what it was going to look like and people were not happy with the results. Germany didn't do that. Germany actually allowed the prices to fluctuate and they did, they increased 20 to 30%, but people were able to make individual decisions based off of what was best for them instead of being left with only the option the government was offering them. All right, so that's important to remember as we look at a crisis like this, that again, the frustration is, is real, but supply and demand, the policies or the, or the rules associated with supply and demand doesn't go away simply because there's a crisis, right? So that, that's the first thing to keep in mind. The next thing to keep in mind as we look at this is um, what sort of policies led us to a situation where so much of our, our, our oil needs were dependent upon a single pipeline, right? That, that's what we call a single point of failure, that if, if one thing goes down, it has a ripple effect throughout the entire economy. And that's one thing where we can look at some of the problems that we have within government policy. So there's a lot of people that are, are you know, blaming Joe Biden for what happened with this pipeline. And there's a, a legitimate way to do that and an illegitimate way to do that, all right? So the, the legitimacy from it comes from the fact that Joe Biden has been anti-pipeline, right? And, and I'm not just talking about as President Joe Biden, I'm talking about the Democratic Party has pushed a particular energy policy, which has um, basically made it harder for people to be able to set up pipelines, which is actually one of the most efficient and environmentally friendly ways to get oil, natural gas, and, and, and other things to the marketplace. It really is, it's far more efficient, it's far more environmentally sound than say, putting it all on, on you know, rail cars or, or other ways that you would actually get fuel to the marketplace. And because they have created an environment, in part because they're trying to shut down oil in, in favor of renewable energy and, and other things, because they've done that, they have made it more difficult for more pipelines to come online and therefore we are more vulnerable to single points of failure within the supply side, right? So that, that's, a legitimate, that's a legitimate complaint. Uh, part of the other complaints about this stem from the fact that we've created this environment in American political discourse where when somebody is president, they are responsible for anything that is good that happens and they're responsible for anything that bad that happens. And, and that's not, it's just not intellectually honest. It, it just isn't. I'm sorry. Again, I'm not here to tell you what you want to hear. I'm here to tell you what I think is true. We need to get out of this, we need to get out of this uh, political arena where we give the president too much credit or too much blame. Um, some things are a direct result of policy, other things are not, right? So I'm, I'm not blaming Joe Biden that Colonial Pipeline was hacked. I am blaming Joe Biden that I think his energy policy is garbage and it creates these sort of single points of failure. So the, the big question that we have for all of us going forward is what should our energy policy be and, and, and what should our kind of defense and law enforcement policy be in order to prevent things like this from happening and having such a, a grand effect. Obviously, um, there, there are going to be people that try to hack our grid, whether it be foreign governments, whether it be criminal organizations, whether it be terrorist organizations. And there is a legitimate role for the government to play with respect to 
ensuring the safety um, of critical infrastructure, but also providing an environment and a regulatory tax and economic environment where it's easier for someone to be able to provide the products and services that are not only something that we want, but that are arguably critical to our economic well-being. And so that's what I want to talk about next is, is where do we go from here? How do we look at what we've done and, and how should we move forward? So let's talk about the, the defense or the, the kind of the infrastructure hardening component, right? Because there, there is a law enforcement and some could even argue a, a military and intelligence role to be played in this. So when you have a foreign criminal entity, which is what Darkseid is, right? It's, it's a hacker group that, you know, hacks in order to try to make money. Um, there's definitely a law enforcement role there. And, and you saw an executive order by Biden where they're trying to make it easier for the private sector and the government sector to be able to communicate to combat this. Okay, that, that makes sense. He's also talking about putting together another blue ribbon commission to look at another commission, blah, blah, blah. Bottom line is, is that I don't think we're all that confused uh, with respect to law enforcement or the intelligence community um, or, or the defense community with respect to how different countries, terrorist organizations or criminal organizations use this, all right? There's different motivations. All right, obviously you could see a, a terrorist organization or a foreign power seeking to do something like this, not just from a, a, a motivation to make money, but for a motivation to harm the United States. And there's a very clear role with respect to our defense and intelligence apparatus in order to prevent that. And you know, I would argue that a, a lot of our defense spending and some of our intelligence spending, we see a lot of it being used in places like Afghanistan right now, which I don't think is a good use of our, our funds. It's not a good use of our military. So. There, there's a very good argument to be made that, look, disengage from those fights, which are, are not as, um, don't present a, a big, as big a threat to United States security, and start to focus on those threats which really can cripple our infrastructure. And, and this, one of the things that this hack did was really show the vulnerability of some of our critical infrastructure. And so we, we do need to invest more of our defense and intelligence dollars in ways that we combat cyber attacks. And the reason why that's so important is because unlike uh, conventional military um, you know, conflicts, which are still a legitimate concern and still need to be a focus, um, a lot of countries recognize that they are not going to defeat the United States in a pitched battle, right? They're, you know, <laughs> your ships are not beating our ships, your aircraft are not beating our, our aircraft, your divisions are not beating our divisions, right? So what they end up doing is they end up investing in what they call asymmetric capabilities. And what asymmetric warfare essentially rests on is this idea that I know I can't beat you in, in a straight up fight. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna invest an inordinate amount of resources into those areas where my ability to attack you can give me the biggest bang for my buck. And that's what you see a lot of countries doing. That's what China's done. That's what you see a lot of you know, terrorist organizations focusing on. Right, a terrorist organization doesn't put together their own armored division in order to take on a, a U.S. armored division. That would be suicide. They know it. So they focus on those areas where they see the greatest vulnerabilities, and that's where they focus their time, effort, you know, money, and resources in order to be effective there, not trying to compete with us head-to-head -head on aircraft carrier battle groups, right? So when we look at the asymmetric component of how other countries, because I guarantee you other countries are looking at what just happened with the Colonial Pipeline, and they are, they are learning from this. And so we need to learn from it as well. 
And that's one of the biggest things that we need to learn from our intelligence and our defense side is that instead of wasting money in a lot of wars overseas that we probably don't need to be involved in, we need to invest more time, more effort, and more resources into understanding asymmetric warfare and coming up with ways to not only engage in defensive operations, but there also needs to be an offensive component to this. Because if you're purely, if, if you're purely conducting defense, that's a losing strategy. Right? I think it was Napoleon that said that the logical end in defensive warfare is in surrender. Because when you're, when you're just trying to defend everything, well, the attacker only has to be right once. You've got to be right all the time. So there needs to be an offensive component to go for this. So if you do have a criminal terrorist or foreign power that engages in this sort of activity, you have the ability to not only successfully defend and then get back online quickly, but that there's also a price to be paid through your offensive capability because that acts as an effective deterrent. So that's one way that we need to, to reallocate resources in order to defend against attacks like this, regardless of where the, the threat comes from. That also features a law enforcement component as well, right? So it's not just a defense and intel component, it's also a law enforcement component. And there is something to be said for having closer ties with law enforcement so that there are very clear, easy to understand processes so that where you have been hacked, you have the ability to effectively communicate with law enforcement so that we can engage in prosecution. Because if you have a domestic attack on something like this, Look, the, the Constitution still applies. You've got to go through due process of law. You've got to be able to build a case. And being able to have that open communication is important. Some companies are afraid to do that because of liability. Other companies are afraid to do that because of privacy. So threading that needle is very important, and there needs to be work done on that so that you can have that open communication where you can protect your business and your customers, while at the same time be able to provide the information necessary to be able to prosecute in court and punish people for engaging in this sort of cyber attack. Right? But, but again, there, there is a needle that needs to be thread here. Right? We, don't, we don't want something where businesses are just constantly handing over all of our data to the government. Right? That we, that's, we don't need a surveillance state um, because at some point, again, you, you are balance, doing a balancing act between trying to create a secure environment but also trying to create a, a free environment which also protects the privacy of customers. Right? So again, I, I don't want to make it out like this is just an easy solution, right? Just open your books to the FBI and we'll be good. No, that, that also comes with other problems associated with it. Uh, th that is something that needs careful analysis and consideration before you come up with, with an objective policy. The third component has to do with what, what does the overall economic policy have to do, again, in order to create an environment where we have an infrastructure that we know is going to be attacked. We know we're not going to be able to stop every attack. So how do we create a robust and competitive environment <clears throat> so that when something does go down, it doesn't create a crisis or the crisis can be quickly averted? And the only way that you can do that is by having more competition in the marketplace. You need more suppliers. Right? You, you, need to, you need to be able to get around these single points of failure. And one of the biggest things, one of the biggest roadblocks that stand in the way of doing that is the regulatory environment and the, this push by politicians to create the sort of energy policy that they want as opposed to what consumers demand. Right? So what consumers demand is to be able to pay the lowest price for the best product possible in order to achieve whatever it is that they want to achieve. Again, your end state is not to buy gas. Your end state is to buy gas so you can do, go do the things that you want or need to do. Right? So the, the, the more competitive and open and free market environment that we have to be able to get you the energy that you need to do that, the better. And you're not going to get that if politicians are, are 
you know, coming up with, with all these ways that they're going to restrict supply in order to achieve some sort of outcome that they envision is better, but doesn't necessarily meet your needs. And, and this is one of the biggest problems that we have between centrally planned economies and free market economies, right? Uh, central planning is anytime the government is essentially stepping in in order to regulate, tax, or control something, um, not, not for the purpose of protecting against things like fraud or theft or abuse, um, but instead pushing the market in a direction that it, it wouldn't otherwise go if producers and consumers were allowed to freely work with one another in a competitive and, and open environment in order to get the best products and services. And that's what you're seeing, right? You've, you've seen this in Virginia. You've seen this in other states. You see it with federal policy. You see it with the Green New Deal. It's this idea that politicians have now decided that this would be better, right? And sometimes they argue it's better economically. That almost never works out. Uh, lately, they've been arguing, well, it's better environmentally, right? The, the, the entire planet's going to, you know, Florida's going to be underwater if we don't have this sort of environmental policy. And we need to be very, very skeptical of that. Because if you look at a lot of the concerns and you look at a lot of the modeling that has been used to push the Green New Deal and other environmental policies, what you see is the models never seem to produce the results that they're threatening us with in order to get the policies they want. And, and what I find interesting is that when you look at a lot of these central planning arguments that have been made, um, and, and the excuse is always, well, we're doing this to save the environment. Well, a lot of those same central planning policies were made 30, 40, 50 years ago, but then they were made from a, a, a socialist mindset or a Marxist mindset, whereas, well, no, this will be better for the economy. This will be better for everyone if the government is managing the economy. Well, it didn't work out. And so now they said, okay, well, we can't really make an argument based off of the economic benefits of this, so we'll make an argument based off of the environmental benefits of it. And, and again, I think we should be skeptical when somebody is essentially rehashing the same failed policies, but they're providing new justification for it, right? None of this is to say that we shouldn't be concerned about the environment. Of course we should. Um, we, we need to make sure that if somebody is polluting or somebody is damaging someone else's property as a result of producing their product or service, well then, yeah, that's, that's what we call a negative externality. And, and we need to make sure that we guard against that because now somebody else is paying a price for what somebody else is producing and they're not, they're not yielding any benefit from it. So I'm, I'm not saying that there's no role for ensuring that people are not harmed through the sort of production that creates pollution or harms the environment. It's not what I'm saying. <clears throat> what I am saying is that as we look at both the, the economic reality of trying to make sure that people get the products and services they need, combined with concerns, legitimate concerns over you know, protecting people's property, protecting the environment so that we can continue to you know, live in a healthy environment, we need to be very skeptical of the central planners. Because one, one of the arguments I like to use is that, okay, if you, let's just say your primary concern, I'll take you at your word, your primary concern is protecting the environment. Great. Can you please show me the centrally planned economy, right, the socialist economy that is producing better environmental outputs that you would like to emulate? Because I can't find it. Is it China? Uh, is, it, is it Venezuela? Was it the former Soviet Union? You know, all these countries engaged in, in significant central planning control of the economy. And not only did that produce good economic results, they produ produced environmentally disastrous results. And so beware going forward of all the politicians that are saying, oh, see, this hack on the pipeline proves that what we really need to do is 
push more on renewables and green energy? Well, no. What we need to do is look at cost-benefit analysis of the different mechanisms, the different outputs that we have with respect to our energy consumption needs, and figure out which ones are most cost-effective, both now and in the long term. And the only way that you're going to be able to effectively do that is if you allow for a free market. And I don't just mean a free market in order to benefit the oil industry, right? I, I don't like it when the oil industry gets a bunch of protection from the government. I don't like that. I mean that if you really want to see renewables actually benefit, if you want to see research and development from renewable energy actually produce the sort of results that make it competitive in an open and free market, then you're going to need to allow them to compete in an open and free market, not constantly subsidize it or regulate it through government policy. So as, as we look at this crisis, and let me just do a, a quick recap once over the world. So what happened? Colonial pipeline, which supplies about 45% of oil consumption needs for the East Coast, was hacked by an element called Dark Side, which is a hacktivist group or a hacking group that hacks people for money. Right? That, that's, that's what happened. All right, that shutdown and the subsequent government and individual response led to runs on gasoline. Part of the government response was to reduce the regulatory and tax restrictions. That's a good policy because it removes artificial government barriers from getting the products we want to the people that need them. That was a good policy. Another part of the government response was things like price gouging legislation. That is bad, not because we want to pay exorbitant prices for gasoline, but because the laws of supply and demand dictate that when demand goes up and supply drops, prices have to increase. If they're not allowed to increase, you will end up with shortages. And the only thing worse than expensive gasoline is no gasoline, right? So that, that's just an economic reality. I'm not talking about the morality of it. I'm saying that's an economic right, reality. And I do think that there is, there is a negative moral component of telling consumers and producers, you're no longer allowed to decide for each other what works out best. The government is now going to come in and fix prices because it doesn't work. It never has. It never will. Right? It always creates shortages. That was part of the government response. The other part of the government response that is affecting all of this is that because the government, especially on the left, have tried to crack down on oil exploration and the delivery of oil to the marketplace, whether it be through pipelines, fracking, additional, that has created an artificial restriction on supply. This not only causes prices to go up as a result of an artificial restriction, it also creates single points of failure. So that when you have a critical pipeline, right, and it goes down, the consequences are far more significant than they might otherwise would have been if you allowed for more free market intervention or more uh, free market responses to uh, supply and demand issues, right? That, that's a reality. The response going forward needs to be twofold. On the defense intelligence and law enforcement side, <clears throat> we do need to create policies and synergies in order to protect against foreign entities that would attempt to interfere with our grid, whether it be through cyber or other means. There needs to be a defensive component to that. There also needs to be an offensive component to that. I'm telling you right now, if, if Darkseid believes that the only threat is that we're gonna increase our defensive capability, they're gonna to continue to do this. There has to be an offensive capability to that as well. And as we look at ways to provide an offensive capability, there's one idea I'd like to throw out there because I think this would be interesting to consider. And it's, purely, and it's completely constitutional because anybody that's watched my podcast, anybody that's listening to me speak knows that I got, I got a real problem with the idea of 
you know, the, the government simply declaring war, deploying troops or things like that. But there is a constitutional mechanism where we can actually empower our own private sector to go after some of these criminal terrorist elements. And it's called letters of mark and reprisal. This is something that the president can issue. I don't think it's actually been done since James Madison. I could be wrong on that, but I think that was the last time and it was done um, in response to things like piracy. And what a lot of people think of a letter of mark and reprisal is they think of privateers, right? Like Sir Francis Drake going out and raiding Spanish galleons on behalf of the English government, right? That's not what I'm talking about. But let, let me give you an idea of how this, something like this would work. When you have an organization like DarkSide that is hacking people for the, the purpose of basically holding them hostage and making money off of that, part of the solution is increasing your defensive capability, right? Becoming a harder target. But when you become a harder target, all that does is it directs their attention somewhere else to a potentially softer target. If you don't have an offensive capability, you're, you're gonna run into problems, all right? And one of the greatest offensive capabilities I think we could tap into is that we do have a lot of cyber um, experts within the United States. And what a letter of mark and reprisal would essentially be is to say that, okay, look, you're a private sector group um, that has a cyber, you know, offensive cyber capability. Now, we're not telling you, you know, just raise the black flag and do whatever you want, right? There's still legal frameworks that you have to operate in. Um, but I think a company that, or like a group like DarkSide, that is gonna hack into US companies, clearly they're not that all concerned about the cyber capability of that company. They might not even be all that concerned about the cyber capability of the United States government. But if they now have to take into account that there could be a letter of mark or reprisal against them, and now 200 different you know, cyber groups within the United States could be coming after them, that significantly increased the cost associated with them engaging in that sort of activity within the United States. Now, again, you, you would need a careful legal framework to go about doing something like this, but I, I think it's interesting. I think it's something worth considering with respect to our overall response to criminal and terrorist organizations that are trying to engage in this sort of attacks against our grid or attacks against uh, U.S. businesses. I, I think we have a way to leverage a lot of talent that we don't necessarily need to roll into our government apparatus in order to do that. So I, I think that's something to consider when we, when we consider our offensive capability, all right? So that's one component, right? The government response with respect to defense and law enforcement, right? How do we harden our grid? How do we provide a offensive capability? And when an attack comes within the United States, how do we foster sort of the relationships and interactions that we need to in order to follow due process of law when prosecuting criminal activity uh, within our borders? But how do we do so effectively and efficiently while at the same time protecting consumers, protecting privacy, and adhering by the Constitution? The second part of government policy needs to be the, the idea of, of stop Stop this incessant need to micromanage energy policy, right? We don't need the government telling consumers or producers how to produce energy, how to get it to market, and what price it should be sold at. We don't need the government doing that. And every time it tries to meddle in this, there are consequences to that. And, and there's, there's a lot of arguments. You actually saw Maxine Waters suggesting at one point that we should nationalize the oil industry. Man, if you think gas prices are bad now, or if you think shortages are potentially bad now, wait until you see what happens when the government nationalizes the entire industry, right? We need more competition and more innovation, and you don't get that through bureaucratic control. If the, if the primary concern 
that an energy producer has to worry about is, is constantly having to go and lobby Congress to make sure that they can actually do what they need to do. And I'm not talking about basic protections for safety or basic protections to, pro to protect against fraud. Uh, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this motivation within a certain element within government to control and micromanage energy policy in such a way as to move it in a direction that the market, and the market is you and I, you and me, right? That's what the marketplace is. It's not an engine like Janet Yellen likes to describe it. It's not you know, a machine. The marketplace is individual producers and consumers making decisions within a free environment where we engage in voluntary interaction and cooperation. That's what it is. That's the marketplace. Allow that to work. And not only will you see more supply at better prices with better quality, but you'll actually see better results for green energy as well. I honestly believe this because if green energy is now competing within a competitive marketplace, instead of just relying on government subsidies to, to push out solar panels that people don't want to buy, right? They, you're not helping that industry. You're hurting it at that point. So government policy needs to reflect or needs to appreciate that the free market is far better at delivering products and services to people at the prices that they want to pay all right, than a government bureaucracy trying to micromanage the process. Right? So that, that's your recap. That's your recap. So again, is Joe Biden completely to blame for all of this? No. But are the policies that he's pushed in the past and the policies that he's currently pushing contributing to the problem? Yes, they absolutely are. I, I fully believe that. But, but part, of the, you know, part of the heat that he's taking right now is not just purely a, par, a result of the policies that he's championed. It's also a result of, of this narrative that has been pushed within the media that the president is ultimately responsible for anything good or anything bad that happens. right? And, and that's, that's not intellectually honest and neither side should engage in it. But when one side decides to engage in it, well, then the other side is going to engage in it as well because it, it doesn't pay to stay out of the game at that point. Um, but what we should do as conservatives, as advocates of the free market, is don't make sloppy claims. Don't make sloppy claims against the Biden administration. Focus in on those aspects of his policies, whether they be regulatory, tax, or central planning policies that are ineffective and harmful and exacerbate a crisis, focus in on those because we want the bad policies getting the blame. We don't want just these generic arguments out there because that, in, that doesn't help us in the long run. We wanna make good arguments that people can understand, relate to, and understand so that when we are advocating for positive policies that will have a, 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 you know, a positive benefit, that they'll actually be adopted by policymakers. Right? So don't let your policy, even policymakers that you agree with, don't let them get away with shoddy arguments. Insist on good arguments so that we can have good policy and that we can have an environment where you know, we don't wake up one day to a crisis where 45% of the oil um, supply to the East Coast is now taken offline for several days and everyone's running around, whether it be you know, gas station owners, politicians, or individual consumers that think they've got to fill up their car with plastic bags full of gasoline. All right, so again, I, I hope this was helpful. I hope this kind of explains what was going on, why some of the reactions took place the way they did, what we should do in the future in order to avoid uh, something like this. I hope that was beneficial. So once again, if, if you like what we had to say, like, share, subscribe. This helps us get it out to other people. Again, 
We don't want to just make a, you know, quote, conservative argument. We want to make a good argument for what we believe because that's the only way that we're going to be able to advance the sort of policies and environment that's going to make everyone better off in the end. Once again, I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.